0: Coming to you from the ugliest building in the Gulch, it's the Nashville Scene Cast. I'm Scene Editor D. Patrick Rogers. If you like us, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rate us and leave comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks to Jeff The Brotherhood for providing our intro music, Diamond Way from the album We Are The Champions. And thanks to Scene Intern Jason Saita, who cuts together all of our episodes. Today's SceneCast is brought to you by It's All Your Fault, a new podcast from the scene about the Nashville Predators. The show features David Beauclair and Megan Sealing talking about all things Preds. With one insider and one outsider and a range of guests, they'll follow the team's quest to return to the Stanley Cup Finals. You can subscribe to It's All Your Fault on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn today. I'm Scene Editor D. Patrick Rogers. We cover a lot of ground in this week's issue of The Scene. Let's start with our cover package, which was put together by scene contributor Nancy Floyd, editor of our sister publication, In Focus. The eighth annual Nashville Fashion Week kicks off on April 3rd at Oz Arts. and for our cover, Nancy chatted with all six designers featured in this year's opening night designer showcase. Among those designers is Maria Pony Silver, the recipient of this year's Nashville Fashion Forward Fund. In this week's scene cast, Nancy sits down with Silver to talk about her inspiration, which finds its roots in the experiences of her mother, a Dominican immigrant who lived in New York City in the 1970s. Stay tuned after their chat for more.
1: Hello, I am In Focus editor and scene contributor Nancy Floyd, and I am joined today by the designer behind. Black by Maria Silver, and this year's Nashville Fashion Forward Fund recipient, Maria Pony Silver. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. Um, And congratulations on winning the Fashion Forward Fund. For those of you listening that aren't familiar with this... um, the Fashion Forward Fund is an endowed fund through the Community Foundation of Middle Tennessee that, and this is a quote, um, supports the next generation of fashion industry professionals with ties to Middle Tennessee by providing an annual financial award and resources for experiential professional development opportunities. And this is where a portion of all the proceeds from National Fashion Week go to help support um individuals here in, in middle Tennessee with ties to the fashion industry. So past recipients have included photographer Brett Warren, menswear designer Eric Bornhop of Eric Adler Clothing, accessories designer Sari Hoover, and stylist blogger Elise Joseph. So um, Maria is joining a long list of worthy uh, recipients. So how does it feel to be the recipient this year?
2: It's exciting. I've I applied many times. So it's almost got I found like comfort and losing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um and, uh. So it was strange when they called me. They were like, "Hey, you won this thing." I was like, "Really? Um, it's really exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that they, because it's you know the competition is open to not just designers, but it can be like photographers, it could be hair and makeup people. So it's a it's a broad spectrum of mm-hmm. people that can apply, and they get a lot of applicants. And yeah. so to to win something as an adult yeah. also <laughs> is like you know you win things as kids. Yeah. I was like, I won a yeah, thing. Can, yeah. What um what is the application process like? You have to submit your proposals, what you would do if you would win the money. So um, mine is I'm going to the Decoded Fashion Summit in London, which um, is uh, a summit that basically uh, combines, kind of uh, teaches you like innovative ways to use e-commerce and mix it with your retail and stuff like that. Um, And there's panels throughout the day and there's um, uh, startups come and like kind of pitch their ideas. So... You know, I was watching I went through this whole like YouTube black hole of watching stuff from, you know, 2010 at the summit and those people pitching ideas of what's happening now in retail back then. So it's kinda and I think it's probably definitely the area where I I'm faulty the most is just a uh, web techie things. So yeah. this is why, <laughs> and then and that's what's so great about it is is something like the Fashion Forward Fund is that I can take the time out now to go and to do this. I wouldn't. I would never be able to do this on my own. Yeah. And but it's it's. I'm I'm hoping to come back with, with some incredible, innovative, magical ideas. That That's great. When that is can, that? Um, it's in June. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So it's That's coming exciting. up soon.
1: Yeah. Um. So let's talk a little bit about your
2: history. How did you get your start in fashion? I went to um, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I started there, but my mom taught me how to sew, and so I, you know it was the '90s, it was high school. I was cutting up my clothes, sewing them back together, yeah. creating weird shapes. Yeah, <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> you well, you and your career has been interesting too because you've done a lot of different things. You've done. Um, Broadway costuming on shows like Mamma Mia. You've designed custom stage pieces for artists like Margot Price. You recently did a partnership with the National Ballet to put together performance pieces for one of, for Seven Deadly Sins, right, for that show. That was so so
2: incredible. Yeah,
1: what is, like, what's the best part of your job? What do you love most about what you do?
2: I think it's the randomness of it. I mean, you know, to get a call from National Ballet to be like, do you want to do this? And that was through... Um, the National Fashion Alliance. So they approached them, and then they approached They Knowing that I have a costume background, they were like, this is the person you should talk to. Um, And... uh, it's just that I never know what next month will have in store for me. Like, mm-hmm. I have a, a, a storefront yeah. now, and I did not plan that. Yeah. That was, you know, and I opened in, like, two weeks. It was just, like, this opportunity arose, and I was like, here's a store, and it's really small, and you can afford it, and it's probably the size of this room. And I was like, I can do this, and, and now I have a store. Awesome. <laughs> so, <awesome. laughs> so next week
1: is the start of National Fashion Week, um, and yeah. this whole issue of the scene this week, our cover story is about The designers that are showing on Tuesday night, which is opening night at the Nashville Designer Showcase. And so you are among those six designers. Mm -hmm. You're showing your spring summer collection. Um, What can you tell us about the
2: collection that you're going to be showing? The collection is inspired by my mother. I was thinking about um, a lot about when she first came to the States. Um, and it was in 1973, and she moved, she had married my dad, and he was already here. He had moved here, like, the 50s. And um, she moved here in 1973, and just kind of, like, that jarring juxtaposition of moving from, she's from a, a town called Hatibacoa in the Dominican Republic, which is in the mountains. Mm-hmm. just a tiny, tiny, tiny little town. Um, and then she moved to... West 103rd Street in Manhattan. And so I was just like, <laughs> and yeah, having never yeah. never been to the States before anything. Mm-hmm. And, and I ask her about it, and, and she makes it seem like it wasn't a big deal. I, I feel like that's what happens after time. You know, you look back at things, and they're not as like, uh, you're just like, oh, it's just a thing that happened. But then, she, you know, just peaking her memory is, has been really fun, because she's remembered little small details about it that I never knew. Yeah. Um, from before and so the collection has this kind of push and pull between the island and and city mm-hmm. and you and you mentioned you kind of incorporated there's some small details even in
1: like the fabrics that you chose like aren't like birds a little bit of a part of it or things that you kind of have,
0: have yeah. Woven into yeah there's
2: kind of like some hidden um so my mom loves birds she has she's uh we grew up with a bird and she has a bird now um and she's really really small and she's got a little nose, and so we'd always make fun of her and call her a bird. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. In a lovingly way. Yeah, um, yeah so there's like kind of like a hidden little um, uh, just secrets about that. There's also um, – I d- use a lot of patchwork denim that I've been, I've been having people – I'm really fascinated with like what happens to textiles. Um, like even when you donate things to Goodwill, you're like, I'm doing this great thing. I donate to Goodwill, but in reality, it turns out only about 20% of what you donate actually goes into the store, mm-hmm. and then even less percentage is even is even sold. So and then the rest goes to like this like textile mill. But then there's you know problems with with that emitting that kind of energy. And um, so I've been having people donate denim to the shop and you get a discount and then I'm using that denim and turning it into other so cool other pieces so I'm creating this patchwork denim and it kind of mimics the bricks of the city and and then there's like um little inserts of like colors and bursts of like birds and fruitiness <laughs> popping through <laughs> all you, the Do you have a favorite piece things. from this collection? I do. I have this parka that I made um uh, it's just huge oversized um, it's just huge oversized parka in, this, in the patchwork denim and then it's got these inserts that I've used this um, this African modernist print and it's like really bright pink and red and the inserts on the sleeves and it's just like massive I, I always have a coat on it could be like ninety degrees and I'm gonna have some kind of jacket I consider it like my armor. So there's a lot of jackets in this collection. that one's probably my favorite. And then, when will this collection
1: be available to the public? Like, what's the next step after you show it, or are these pieces going to be available
2: in your store? They are. I'm gonna um, release things in in groups, okay, instead of just like one thing. Yeah, I feel like social media has kind of like changed how you how everybody views fashion, and they they everybody wants things more immediately so if I release everything at once then all of a sudden like two months later no one's interested in anything anymore yeah (laughs) so it's gonna be an increment so I'm actually doing a pop-up at Union Station with Fashion Week as well on that Thursday and I'll have some of it there that'll be like the first drop and I actually have some of it that already came out in February that's part of it and then so so like monthly you'll be able to
1: and if anybody wants to see a little sneak peek before um, Fashion Week on Tuesday, you can check out this issue of The Scene because we were able to photograph um, a model in, in, in one of the looks. So you can get a little sneak peek at the collection, um, as well as a collection from the other five designers that are showing um, on opening nights. So opening night is the National Designer Showcase, so it's all local talent, which is really great. It's just a great way to kind of shine a spotlight on. The, the individuals here in Nashville who are doing great things with fashion. So there are five other designers, and I'm going to try not to butcher names, but um, it's Andrew Clancy of Any Old Iron, Ashley Balding of Onorex, Caitlin Stoley of Lily Gilder, Truly Alvareña of Pink Elephant Designs, and Leslie Stevens of Olamai. And um, all five of these designers, in addition to Maria, are in this week's issue of The Scene, and we we photograph them at work in their studios. They talk to us about the inspiration behind their collections, which is always so fascinating to me. I mean, I love your yeah. story about being inspired by your mom and her experience moving to the States, but every single designer has a really unique story as, as to what inspired their collection. So um, you can get a little sneak peek of that. But whose collection are you most excited to see? Because I know these are all your friends you're going to be showing alongside, yeah, but what are you looking like forward to? it'll like a family
2: to? reunion. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited about all of them. Really, I'm not trying to be like pageant <laughs> but I am because they're friends and I'm, I'm generally excited about and they're also talented and stuff. I mean, um, Ola May does these really beautiful, vintage, like, uh, psychedelic, just beautiful, beautiful, like, tailored pieces. And then Ona Rex has these kind of, like, beautiful origami-esque space shapes that I love. (laughs) And then you have um, Andrew doing just, like, sparkle glam. Um, Lily's always super fun. Lily Gilder's really fun. Um, And... uh, Gosh, truly always, truly always really surprises me. She always comes out with these really beautiful um, uh, gowns. Yeah. Yeah. Not too many people show gowns as much anymore. Yeah. yeah.
1: It is a really good mix, and that was really fun when we were putting together this issue and we were doing the shoots with with all the models and the collections because you've got, you know, Annie Old Iron, so it's like a full sequins suit, and it's fabulous, and it's, he did all this really cool work with... Um, like created this stripe pattern with the different materials. And so that's really beautiful. And then um, Ona Rex, is you kind of mentioned, it's like she described it as deep sea meets deep space. And so there are like these really yeah. cool shapes and really bright colors. Uh-huh. The dress that we photographed is like bright, bright yellow. And it was really, really fun. She's and not
2: afraid of color. And not I at all, yeah, that. which
1: is really fun. And yeah. she did some really interesting things with the, with the silhouettes to kind of mimic... Um, like jellyfish on Mars, I think is what she jokingly referred to as the nice. name of the collection, and so it's like yeah. it kind of gives off that look of like gills or something. Yeah. It's really neat, but um, yeah. So there's some really fun things, and we, we photographed this really beautiful dress from Truly that is just really soft and really pretty. So that was kind of a fun thing going into this to see it's such a it's such a wide range of of talent and tastes and styles. So this is really neat. But um, you, I know, have been involved with with National Fashion Week. Since it started, twenty eleven was the first year that they launched and you showed as an emerging designer that year. I showed I didn't
2: show the very first year,
1: I showed oh, the second you year. You showed in twenty twelve okay, sorry, mm-hmm. twenty twelve. So it was an emerging um, how do you feel like National Fashion Week has changed throughout the
2: years as you've been a oh part of gosh, it? Oh my gosh, it's grown to a really amazing I don't even know what I'm trying to say. It's huge now. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's crazy. Um and it's it's really been fun to watch it grow. Um, and what I love about them the most is that they're growing and they're doing their thing, but they're still, their whole base of it is still supporting like the independent designer, you know what I mean? Like the, the fact that it's still about that and then for them to have the fashion forward fun too. Like there's other regional fashion weeks and it's just like, here's these shows and there's nothing like that Mm -hmm. that's on the end of it. And on top of that, and they're doing the pop-ups and stuff too, like at the end of the day you can show, but you can show at fashion week, but it's like, how are you, what about money right. <laughs> this is yeah. really expensive to put on and they think about this they're like they're, and they're just so um incredibly supportive and I mean you know they'll just like randomly text you and be like don't forget to breathe yeah. <laughs> and it's like, things like that and it's just really sweet and um and that just uh, kind of is a testament to the whole uh Nashville fashion community yeah.
1: And speaking of the national fashion community, I mean, you've also witnessed a lot of change there being involved in that. And we've all sort of seen that, how it's grown and um, has started to become taken so much more seriously, not just obviously in the city, but really across the country. What, what do you love about being a fashion designer here in this city, as opposed to in New York or in LA or in, in some other larger city?
2: I can afford it. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. So let's start there. Yeah. Um, there's that. I mean, and that's huge. That's everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, you know, to to have a, a studio space or to have a small shop in in New York. I don't, that's that's another. That's just another level of of. I don't. I New York is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> rents are crazy. Um, and uh, uh so there's that, and then there's the fact that there's there's just, you know to have so many designers within just a couple of miles Um, and the fact that I know everybody and, and everyone's so like, Hey, that's awesome. You won this thing. And it's, it's, I've never felt um, any sort of animosity or, um, or weirdness, or competition, or whatever, because everyone's doing really different stuff as well, too. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I feel like I, there's room for it all, too, because I, Nashville's growing in general population, and it's like, yeah, there's this woman that wants to dress, like, really cool, and, like, Southern, and linens, and whatever, and mm-hmm. then there's this cool this girl that wants to wear sequins. Right. You know, like I feel that person is here. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, For all of you
1: listening, Nashville Fashion Week begins this week on Tuesday, April 3rd. You can get the full schedule of events at their website, which is NashvilleFashionWeek.com. We also have a calendar of events in this week's issue of the Nashville scene, along with a little sneak peek at those designers that are going to be showing at opening night. There is a week of events. It's not just runway shows. Those are happening almost every night, but there are um, as, as Maria said, there's, there's pop-up events, they have these creative educational labs, there are shopping events every day, which is great, every so there's day, good discounts yeah. um, at all of your favorite local boutiques, so be sure to check that out and pick up this week's issue of The Scene or visit us on NashvilleScene.com. Thanks so much.
0: That's not all there is to this week's issue of The Scene. Flip to our film section to read contributor Jason Sean's interview with legendary underground filmmaker Alice Wittenstein. In the music section, you'll find contributor Adam Gold's update on Music Row's preservation efforts. And up front, in our city limits section, you'll find staffer Stephen Hale's story about death row and the mock executions that take place at Tennessee's Riverbend Maximum Security Institution. So, Stephen, earlier this year, uh, the state of Tennessee began scheduling executions again, right? Will you tell us a little bit about that? Right,
3: so uh, there hasn't been an execution in Tennessee since 2009, um, but in between then and now there have been um efforts to resume executions a few years back there were uh, a number of executions scheduled and then they all got called off because of challenges to the state's lethal injection protocol um, and then this year the state attorney general herbert Slatery uh started asking for these executions to be scheduled again so the state supreme court has scheduled um, a number of them there were there was a Brief effort to uh, the AG wanted to see eight executions scheduled before June 1st, which would have been a pretty remarkable run of executions. Um, and he said that he wanted that to be done because they weren't sure about the availability of lethal injection drugs past that point. Hmm. That effort has since been um, stopped. The Supreme Court denied the request for those executions to be set. But there are currently five executions still scheduled for this year, um, kind of throughout the year.
0: So, yeah, at various phases of legal legal. Yeah, status. and all those cases are
3: kind of in in different places. Some of those men, uh, they're all men in this case. Some of them have appeals remaining. Some of them have fewer options left. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Ray Irick, who's a, a man I wrote about in the scene of, a while back, is someone who is in in real jeopardy of actually being executed because he's he's out of pretty much out of options. Um, I mean there are always some left but he he's done all his appeals and that kind of thing so it's not clear how many of these executions would take place but there are five on the calendar for this year
0: um, well in this week's scene and your limits piece for us uh, you started you kind of led off with a pretty interesting anecdote from Jeannie Alexander will you tell us a little bit about Jeannie I mean we've covered her many times for yeah uh,
3: well so the the story in this week's scene is trying to kind of um, talk about the people who are involved in the actual process of carrying out the death penalty. Um, there's always a lot of focus on the people being executed and a lot of focus on the victims of the crimes that those people are being executed for, for good reason in both cases. But they're, whenever we execute people, we ask a relatively small group of people to actually make that happen. And so I wanted to try to write about that. Jeannie Alexander, um, is a staunch death penalty opponent and abolitionist, and she has been for a long, long time. She was a chaplain though at Riverbend, uh where Death Row is. And so she worked closely with the Death Row prisoners, with the staff on Death Row. And like you say, in the beginning of the story, I um I write about this this story that she told me that she was very hesitant to to share and kind of had some um she was struggling with whether to to share it publicly because one, it's just a very difficult story, and two, um, she struggled with the possibility that people would, how people would perceive it, because she's so strongly opposed to the death penalty. But basically, uh, according to the state's protocols, the staff at Riverman has to undergo these mock executions, training sessions. Um, In the story, I note that some people inside the prison system refer to them as ban practice. And they basically have to run a a mock execution to to practice for uh, the eventuality, you know, that they may, when they'll do this for real and they they do this with a real person playing the role of the person being executed, which they refer to as the victim, and they inject them with saline solution. I mean they do the whole thing you know down to the
0: From letter the, onto the gurney, the whole thing
3: right, right, so in this instance in the story I, I lead off with, Jeannie was there, and she talks about how these are normally pretty somber exercises for obvious reasons, but that on this occasion there was some joking and laughing around and cutting up and that she sort of instantly recognized that this was just people who are nervous and Mm -hmm. this is a really grim thing to be doing, but that it still didn't sit well with her. And she ended up volunteering to be the, the victim, if you will, the person being executed. Um, and so, yeah, she, you know, she was put into death watch, which is these cells that they put the men in before Mm -hmm. they're executed. And she was, you know, they come in, they shackle you, they lift you up onto a gurney. They will you into the death chamber. They, you know, strap you down and, and inject you with saline solution. So she went through all of that. And, uh, you know, just talking to her now, you can you can still tell it's a very, it was a very um, sort of surreal experience. She's a, a priest. This, this happened on Holy Week. So it was just, so there's a lot a going on there. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and the reason that story stuck with me so much is that, you know, that is going on right now. Um, TDOC, the Tennessee department of correction confirmed to me that they did one of those, they're supposed to do them once a month, according to the protocol. And they did one, you know, uh, a week ago or so. So, yeah. I mean, they're, they're just kind of always doing these and it's striking to me that there are people who, you know, t- don't get paid a whole lot mm-hmm. and, and are asked to carry this out. And even if they never actually carry out a real execution, just the
0: preparation for this has to weigh on them, and people I talked to said that it does. Mm-hmm. And and you spoke to a couple other people for this story. Will you tell me um, sort of who those people are and what their connections to either these mock executions or potential actual executions? Yeah,
3: is? I, I talked to a number of people for this story, some of whom don't end up in the in the story that's that we published, and you know just for various reasons a lot of people really struggle with whether to talk about this stuff Mm -hmm. whether they want to talk about it on the record for 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 everyone for their own reasons right i mean some people used to work on death row and don't anymore and they're happy about that and they just Mm -hmm. want to leave it behind them some people um are not in a position to be very open about certain things and or at least they don't feel like they are. You know, everyone has their own reasons. But yeah, I, I spoke to I spoke to another chaplain, and this gentleman is not actually in the story, although I'm planning to use some of the things we talked about in another thing I'm working on, but um, a guy named Jerry Welburn, mm-hmm. who was a chaplain at Death Row as well, and actually he was the chaplain there for every execution that's taken place kind of in the modern era since 2000, and... Um, so I, I talked to him. I talked to a man named Endume who scene readers might know. He was on our cover years ago. Laura Hudson okay. wrote a piece about him. He was exonerated and released from death row after he did 27 years in prison, 19 of them on death row. I talked mm-hmm. to him about just the experience of being a death row prisoner when they start scheduling executions and what that's like. Right. Because you got to remember, I mean, there are these guys who have been on death row for 20 years mm. or more. You know, I mean, they're there a long time. And then all of a sudden... The state starts actually trying to rev this machine up again. I mean, there are guys there who have been taken to death watch multiple times, and then their execution gets called off. So then they just go back,
0: right? And they're so just... they're within
3: hours. I mean, I talked to I talked to one um, person who I quote in the story, who I, um, their name isn't used, but someone who who used to work at Riverbend in a number of different capacities, who told me about times when they got within ten minutes of an execution and had it called off. And the weird thing is that. You know, people listening to this, people reading the story probably think, well, that's a great relief to anyone mm-hmm. there. And everyone that I talked to who talked about that experience said, yeah, it is in a way. But you also get mentally to a place where you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. You've done these rehearsals. You you know, the right. person is there waiting. They've had their last meal in some case. I mean, wow. everything has happened. You've done all the stuff. Mm-hmm. So however you get to that place, you've gotten there. And then it it all turns off. Right. So there, there's just a lot. To think about. Yeah. Um, it's but a, yeah, those are
0: some of the people I talk to. Um, the psychological trauma of of crossing that line is one thing, but also approaching that line again and again and it being recalled, whether it's the people who are part of that, you know, the the small group of people who actually enact the, you know, the injection right. or the person on death row. I mean, that's a, a sort of a repeated trauma.
3: Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And I mean, there are, I should note, I mean, there are far too many people to to have included in the story. But, I mean, there are people on every side of this. Even mm-hmm. have, there are victims' families mm-hmm. who, you know, have been waiting years and years for what this at least the system tells them is justice, right? Mm-hmm. That this person has been sentenced and we're going to execute them. And the theory of the death penalty, I mean, I, full disclosure, would would argue strongly that it doesn't follow through on this theory. But the mm-hmm. idea is supposed to be that this is... Justice, right? This is closure, what, justice, right. right? And so they wait all these years for that, and then s- sometimes it never happens because mm-hmm. the system is so flawed that for various reasons the cases are bad, or you know, th- um, but so they have their own experience. You have the people on death row who obviously it's weighing on them, but also their family members. Um, I talked to a woman whose brother was executed, and this is someone else who I'm um, hoping to use our conversation for something else I'm writing along the same lines. But I mean, she talked about the experience of having a family member on death row and, and thinking they were going to be executed and then they're not. And then mm-hmm. it actually happened. So there are all these different people who have these different angles from which they come at this. Yeah. Um, but again, the point being that when we talk about the death penalty, we're not just talking about the person going to be executed and the, the Vic their victims. We're talking about this, you know what I refer to in the pieces is this kind of small subpopulation of people who just walk around with the weight of this system, Sure. and we don't hear from them very often.
0: Yeah, well, it's a it's a great story, well done. I mean, obviously, pretty you know sobering subject matter, sure. but I think it's an interesting look at sort of oh right, there is sort of this uh, infrastructure to how this thing works, and I, I don't think people get a look at that often. So thanks for doing it for us, Stephen. Of course, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. you